Good evening. Okay. We are continuing our adventures in 2 Samuel. Everyone had to get up and try the filtered water. Something about that. I was like, really? Filtered water? I've never had that before. Let me try some filtered water. And the coffee is made with filtered water, too. So if you're wanting some coffee with the filtered water, go ahead while you're up there and go at it. It's all new. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, what is that? The guys just are used to drinking out of the hose, I guess. This has been a turbulent time for David. And, you know, when you read a book, a lot of times you'll think, okay, you know, whether it's some novel or something, there is a point, there's a character, there's the climactic episode in the book, and then there's a conclusion. But when you start reading some of these books, like when we went through 1 Samuel, it kind of just transitioned into 2 Samuel because really they were at one time one book. And then as we're going through this, it's like there's highs and lows and, and we realize that we're actually reading historic events. And as we understand these are historic events, we start understanding that there are multiple highs and multiple lows and Sometimes there's just informational things that, again, God has wanted us to be aware of for, I think, a lot of reasons. And hopefully we'll kind of be able to delve into some of those reasons here today. But as we're just reminding ourselves, David's son, Absalom, has just taken over the kingdom. He had worked his way in the hearts of the people, remember he was a handsome man and had hair that weighed five pounds. We know that because he would cut it once a year and that's, he thought, to weigh it. Maybe he sold it, you know, I don't know, maybe made wigs back then too. I don't know. I doubt it. But he won the hearts of the people and by winning the hearts of the people, he started developing relationships with them. He, there's seats here in front. I don't know whose sunglasses these are. Are those yours, James? Fancy. But, oh. <laughs> anyway, so they um, won, he won the hearts of the people, and he worked his way to make it look like he was going to be a successor to the throne. He went to a city and had them announce that Absalom is king, and everyone was like, oh, good. He's been doing good. He's been judging, helping us, and pleading our cases. I like this guy. I really think he's the candidate for the job. And so as Absalom takes his place in this self-appointed role, then he gets some advice from Ahithophel, who used to be David's advisor. And Ahithophel pushes Absalom to this place where he says, you need to just take over and make the stick. And the way you're going to do this is in front of all of Israel, go and sleep with your father's concubine so that they know that you have now taken over his place. And it was what you would do if you were in power at that time. So Absalom did it. And so now people know, oh, this isn't just a successor. He's actually taking over. In the meantime, David is fleeing for his life. 
Some people are gathering with him. He's got some of his faithful men with him, but he had to run just to escape. And this is where we're taking up. And we're starting in 2 Samuel chapter 17. Ahithophel, this is the counselor that used to be David's counselor. Remember, let's read verse 23 of chapter 16 because it's real important that it leads into this. Now, in those days, the advice of Ahithophel gave was like that of one who inquires of God. That was how both David and Absalom regarded all of Ahithophel's advice. So this guy was very cunning, very wise, very knowledgeable. Ahithophel said to Absalom, I would choose 12,000 men and set out tonight in pursuit of David. I would attack him while he is weary and weak. I would strike him with terror, and then all the people with him will flee. I would strike down only the king and bring all the people back to you. The death of the man you seek will mean the return of all. All the people be, will be unharmed. This man seemed, this plan seemed good to Absalom and to all the elders of Israel. A couple things that are important to point out here as Absalom is giving counsel. One of them is immediately. I want you to do this right now. The iron is hot. It is time to strike. David is unorganized, he's old, he's fleeing. Now we have him off guard. Do this now. It's also interesting that in verse 2, he kind of slips up and he says, I would strike down only the king. And he actually calls him the king. Because remember, Absalom has now appointed himself as king. But then he goes on and his purpose is, we just want him out of the way. We don't want to start a huge war. We don't want people against you. We're trying to get people for you, so just kill him. That way the others will be unharmed. And this sounded good to Absalom. Ahithophel's plan was smart. It was bold and it would probably succeed and it would spare Israel the death of a lot of people and possibly even a civil war between the supporters of David and the supporters of Absalom. So this really makes a lot of sense, and we can see why this man's counsel was sought after. He had a plan. It was to be decisive. It was to be clear, and it was to also have the promise of a future for Absalom. But, verse 5, Absalom said, summon also Hushai, the archite, so we can hear what he has to say as well. And so he now brings in this gentleman. And remember in 2 Samuel chapter 15, David had prayed that the Lord would confound Ahithophel's wise counsel. And he also sent this man, Hushai, to be a spy for him. So now Absalom counsels one of David's own supporters. He goes, what do you think? I want to hear what he has to say as well. When Hushai came to him, Absalom said, Ahithophel has given this advice. Should we do what he says? If not, give us your opinion. Hushai replied to Absalom, the advice Ahithophel has given is not good for this time. Now, every other time it seems to have been 
purposeful, it was direct, good, but it's not good this time. Remember, he's actually supporting David. And so here's his advice. You know your father and his men, they are fighters and as fierce as a wild bear robbed of her cubs. Besides, your father is an experienced fighter. He will not spend the night with the troops. Even now, he is hidden in a cave or some other place. If he should attack your troops first, whoever hears about it will say, there has been a slaughter among the troops who follow Absalom. Then even the bravest soldier whose heart is like the heart of a lion will melt with fear. For all Israel knows that your father is a fighter and that those with him are brave. And so immediately... The advice is contrary to that of Ahithophel's. And his advice is, you know your father and his men are fighters. They're fierce. They're probably camped out hiding somewhere, waiting to ambush you. So he puts this fear in his mind, this idea that, you know, oh man, they're ready for you. They're, they're smart. Now David, maybe when he was younger, was a fighter. But right now, we know from the past chapter that right now, David actually is a basket case. He is not organized. He is weeping. He is mourning as he walks. His son is trying to kill him. He has just, he's beside himself. And Hushai knows this. And so what he's doing right now is buying David some time. But what he's doing is first causing caution and fear to enter Absalom's heart. And then he's going to give him his advice. Verse 11. So I advise you, let all Israel from Dan to Beersheba, as numerous as the sand of the seashore, be gathered to you with you yourself leading them into battle. Then we will attack him wherever he may be found, and we will fall on him as dew settles on the ground. Neither he nor any of his men will be left alive. If he withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city, and we will drag it down to the valley until not so much as a pebble is left. And now he advises him to wait and to amass a number of people. Get everyone besides you. Remember, Absalom has quite an ego. Absalom is really full of himself. And not only do you want to get everyone behind you, but you yourself should be leading the battle. And you can see Absalom saying, yeah, I think I should, waving his hair. I should be leading the battle. I am the new king, and yeah, everyone in Israel should see me taking this stance. And so this would buy time for David, and it is appealing to Absalom's ego, and it is now putting him in a situation where David can actually find out what's going on and make a plan. He tells him this scenario, but we're going to see things change. Verse 14, Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the advice of Hushai the archite is better than that of Ahithophel. For the Lord had determined to frustrate the good advice of Ahithophel in order to bring disaster to Absalom. Interesting verse. 
The Lord had determined to frustrate it. How did God determine to frustrate Absalom? What are some thoughts? Did God change Absalom's will? Did God force Absalom to do what he wanted him to do? Yes, Eileen? His own vanity, yep. So God didn't push Absalom or force him to make a choice. But he did allow opportunity for a whisper to be placed in his ear that he would choose. It's really important that we understand that God is always at work and has things that he desires to to see accomplished in the hearts of people, but he will never force people against their will. That free will is very important to God because God is love and freedom is an important part of love. We're going to really, this is what our topic is on Sunday, dealing with this attitude and this understanding. But here we see that God did not push Absalom to this position. He allowed Absalom to take this position himself. But God was orchestrating these things and still accomplishing what was going to be his plan, not only for Israel at this time, but for the descendants of David throughout history, which would come to Jesus. And it's important that we recognize that God does not force people to change their mind, but God is still at work to accomplish things in history. And how that works is hard to see. It's verses like this, the Lord had determined to frustrate. How did he determine that? Well, it was what he wanted to do because of Absalom, his heart, David, his heart, God's design for the descendants of David as he had promised him. And so that's what he determined, but then how did he accomplish it? Well, he allowed people to actually influence the people. Remember, this is exactly what David prayed in chapter 15, verse 31. In fact, let's turn there real quick, just so we can see. 2 Samuel 15, 31. Now David had been told, Ahithophel is among the conspirators of Absalom. So David prayed, Lord, turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. Isn't it interesting that David's prayer is that Ahithophel's wisdom would be thought of as foolishness. And then what we see Absalom doing is taking Hushai's advice and disregarding Absalom, I mean Ahithophel's. It's interesting that David prayed just this and the Lord determines and how those things are working together. If we would recognize how much influence we have on the workings of God, I think it would surprise us and I think it would frighten us to understand that God works through you and me to accomplish his purpose. So many times people are so relinquished to say, well, whatever God wants in a circumstance, well, maybe God wants you to do something. 
Well, whatever God wills, I'm just open. If he wants me to move to Texas or if he wants me to move there, you know, the Lord will lead me. And the Lord is there, you know, he's in Texas or he's in Missouri. It doesn't matter to him. He's more in California than either of those places. But, you know, I mean, God, God is everywhere. And so it's not like if you get to Texas, oh, no, God's not here. You know, if you get off on the pl- plane in Texas, God's there. Hey, I'm here. Come on, let's go. I got stuff for you to do here. If you go to Missouri, God's, hey, I'm glad you're here. Come on, we got things to do. So it's not like God wants you to go to Texas or go to Missouri, but maybe he's given you the choice. What do you want to do and how are you going to live your life in Texas, in Missouri, or in California? It's up to you. Well, God, I want you to tell me what to do. I want you to to just open and shut the doors. Make it happen so I don't have to choose anything. Well, he doesn't work that way. Now, he can guide us. Like David prayed, Lord, thwart Ahithophel's plans. Make them foolishness. And all of a sudden, there's Hushai whispering into Absalom's ear, hey, do this instead. You'll look good. Oh, okay. And God does work like that. God does use people to intervene in the lives of others. And he is always at work and working these things out to accomplish the things that he wants to happen. And he'll do that in our lives as well. See, I don't think sometimes it's as important to God if we move to Texas or Missouri or become a plumber or a painter or buy a Nissan or a Toyota I mean, I don't think God is as concerned with those things sometimes as we are. But I think God is always concerned with the character that we do things in. I just spoke to a young man, uh, counseling him, and, and going through some marriage problems and issues. And he was telling me about the, some of the problems that he had, and I asked him, you know, what, what's going on? Why is this situation happening? He says, well, you know, I was unfaithful to my wife, and so she's not sure if she wants to continue in the marriage or not. And I was like, okay. And, and he said, now, you know, I mean, I, I, my, I have this ministry that I'm trying to get people to recognize just the evil that's in hip-hop music, you know, and the influence that it has on them. And my wife is listening to hip-hop music, and, you know, I'm just, I'm concerned for her. And I just thought, well, you know, you're the one who's not listening to it and had the affair, and she's listening to it and is didn't have the affair, maybe there's an advantage to listening to hip-hop music, according to your you know, illustration. That doesn't really hold any water. I don't think God cares so much about the hip-hop music as he does about the fact that you slept with someone else. See, God's will is that you not hurt each other, and you hurt your wife by doing this. So who's doing the will of God? You're worrying about listening to hip-hop music? Is that really what this is about? Is that really the important thing to focus on? And you see, the will of God is to care and do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly. That That's the will of God. 
And so all these other things that we try and focus on, sometimes they're mute. It's not really important. God can use you in Texas, Missouri, California. God can use you if you listen to hip-hop music. Just not country. (laughs) Just kidding. I actually like some country now. Not the old country, though. God can't use that. Um, We focus on the wrong things. We make issues out of things that really aren't what's at stake here. You see, what was at stake here was the nation of Israel, the people of God, and who was going to lead them. Absalom was a man who was obsessed with himself, his power, was willing to defile himself in front of the people to make a statement, to empower himself, did not care about the things of God, cared about the things of himself. And then there was David, who was a flawed man, but did have a heart after God. And so God was working to establish what his purpose was, and that was with David. And it had more to do with who David was and who Absalom was than anything else. And that's what we see unfolding here. God determines. Why did God determine? Did he like David more than him? Well, David was in line with the things that God was doing with the nation. Absalom wasn't. Any questions on this? This ought to be interesting. Or are you guys as confused about the things as I am? Okay. Okay. Well, we'll move forward then. So, the Lord had determined to frustrate the good vice of Ahithophel. Verse 15, Hushai told Zadok and Abathar, remember these are other people, the priests that were working with David, Ahithophel has advised Absalom and the elders of Israel to do such and such, but I have advised them to do so and so. Now, send a message at once and tell David, do not spend the night at the fords in the wilderness. Cross over, that means the Jordan, without fail, or the king and the people with him will be swallowed up. In other words, you got to get moving. This gave him time to regroup, get over to the Jordan. Now, once you're over the Jordan, you can buy a little bit of time, but at least get over the Jordan now before they're able to muster up the people and get things together. Otherwise, you're going to be swallowed up. And that's exactly what David had in mind when he sent Hushai, the priest, back to Absalom, was give me word what I need to do, and they did. And so now David is able to muster up some sense, okay, I've got word, this is what I have to do. Because again, David was not doing well at this point. He was... A broken man, and, and rightly so. Verse 17, Jonathan Ahihaz, Ahimahaz, Ahimahaz, something like that, were staying at Enrogel. A female servant was to go and inform them, and they were to go and tell King David, for they could not risk being seen entering the city. But a young man saw them and told Absalom. So the two of them left at once and went to the house of a man at Bahrim. He had a well in his courtyard, and they climbed down into it. His wife took a covering and spread it over the opening of the well and scattered grain over it. No one knew anything about it. 
When Absalom's men came to the woman at the house, they asked, Where are Ahimaaz and Jonathan? The woman answered them, They crossed over the brook. The men searched but found no one, so they returned to Jerusalem. Now what we're seeing here is that not everyone is on board with Absalom. There are people scattered out who don't want Absalom to be king. Maybe especially after the stunt he did in taking his father David's concubines and sleeping with them on top of the rooftop and making that public declaration that I am now king, taking over my father's place and kind of being assertive. Now you're not being, you know, successor to the throne. Now you are taking it over. We didn't know that. We're not on board with that. And so a lot of people scattered around are not really for Absalom, which is going to make now his plan to get up all the nation of Israel, all the people, and move for him a little bit more difficult because maybe not everyone is really on board to go fight for you. And so things are starting to turn, and they go to find these guys who are spies, but they get away. Verse 21, after they had gone, the two climbed out of the well, and the well was a hole in the ground. It wasn't like one of those wells with the little bucket that you roll down thing like we do. That's why they could cover it and go down there. So they climbed out of the well and went to inform David. They said to him, set out across the river at once. Ahithophel has advised such and such against you. So David and all the people with him set out and crossed the Jordan. By daybreak, no one was left who had not crossed the Jordan. When Ahithophel saw that his advice had not been followed, he saddled his donkey and set out for his house in his hometown. He put his house in order and then hanged himself. So he died and was buried in his father's tomb. Why did Ahithophel hang himself? Was he sad because they didn't take his advice? Yeah, because if Absalom didn't succeed, he would be found a traitor and he would most surely be put to death. And Ahithophel was a wise man, but he sided with the wrong man. And remember, who was Ahithophel's granddaughter? Bathsheba. Bitterness can cause us to make bad decisions. We need to be careful that we don't allow bitterness to control the actions that we make. Ahithophel, wise, cunning, served under David, but David had taken his granddaughter, had slept with her, had killed her husband, brought her into his harem, basically, and I don't think Ahithophel let that go. And so when Absalom came up, he says, good, now's my chance. And he wanted to push this through and make it happen. But as soon as he saw that this wasn't going to happen, he got his house in order because that's the kind of guy he was. I always think that's funny. You get in your house in order. You know, we've talked about, okay, if you know you're, you're going to die, you know, you're going to make sure all the good music is on your iPod, so if people go through and listen to it, oh, they're such a spiritual person, you know. 
You're going to put all the clothes that show you as a, you know, oh, he had a 30-inch waist. Imagine that, you know. Uh, Get your house in order and put things there so that everyone knows what's happening. But he hung himself because he knew this wasn't going to work. He could see that the plan was going to fail. As soon as they didn't strike, he knew that it was doomed. Because he knew David, he knew the men that were with him, and he knew how things were going to run. And so because they didn't strike at the time when David was unorganized and devastated, it gave them time to regroup, and so he went and he hung himself. There are so many similarities that take place between David and the son of David, Jesus. Here was Ahithophel, one of David's own, who betrayed him and hung himself. Also Judas, one of Jesus' own, also betrayed him and hung himself. And there are some other similarities that are just interesting types. When you see them, you just see that I think human nature starts to play itself over and over again. When people act a certain way, it shows up again and again. And betrayal shows up with this kind of devastation as he hangs himself. Verse 24, David went to Manahem. And Absalom crossed the Jordan and all the men of Israel. Absalom had appointed Amasa over the army in place of Joab. Amasa was son of Jethir, an Ishmaelite, who had married Abigail, the daughter of Neshash, the sister of Zeruah, the mother of Joab. The Israelites and Absalom camped in the land of Gilgal. When David came to Manham, Shobi, son of Nahash, from Rabah and of the Ammonites, and Maker, son of Amiel, these names, from Lod-Debar, and Barzilia, the Giladite, from this other place, brought bedding and bowls and articles of pottery. They also brought wheat and barley, flour and roasted grain, beans and lentils, notice I can say all the food, honey and curds, sheep and cheese from cows, milk for David and his people to eat. For they said, the people have become exhausted and hungry and thirsty in the wilderness. And so now David is being supplied. We see the people are coming to aid and they're getting supplies. They're now in a place camping and setting themselves up. Absalom is grouping, taking the advice of the wrong man, and now things are changing. Verse eight or chapter eighteen. David mustered the men who were with him and appointed over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundred of hundreds. David sent out his troops, a third under the command of Joab, a third under Joab's brother Abishai, son of Zeruai, and a third under that guy, the Gittite. The king told the troops, I myself will surely march out with you. But the men said, you must not go out. If we are forced to flee, they won't care about us. Even if half of us die, they won't care. But you are worth 10,000 of us. It would be better now for you to give us support from the city. The king answered, I will do whatever seems best to you. So the king stood beside the gate while the men... While all his men marched out in units of hundreds and of thousands, the king commanded Joab, Abishai, and Letai, be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. And all the troops heard the king giving orders concerning Absalom to each of the commanders. 
And so here they're getting ready for battle. Now David is able to strategize. He's able to put the people into groups. He's got Joab, who's a trained and veteran commander, his brother, who's also been fighting with him, and this other guy. And they're all going out, and David's ready to go out with them. And they said, no, because if they kill you, it's done, which was exactly Ahithophel's advice. Just get David. Don't worry about anyone else. If you get David, it's done. And they're saying, no, you're important. You stay back. You can help us from the city. We'll go out. And David said, okay. Plus, by this time, again, David is up in years. He might not be as handy with the sword as he used to be. I don't know. But they say, you're better staying back. And so he does stay back. And he's going to help them from the distance. And as he's sending him out, he says, be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. He's telling him, don't kill him for my sake. Why is he telling him that? It's his son. It's his son. Okay, good. Thank you, Pat. Cleared that up. Nothing too difficult there. It's his son. Exactly. That's what we're going for. So be gentle. Verse 6, David's army marched out of the city to fight Israel. Now, that should just strike you right there because Israel always in our mind has this connotation of being the people of God. But remember, Israel is a region named after the person, Jacob, who became Israel. And so it is a region, Israel. And that's why Judah would be a southern kingdom, Israel, northern kingdom, I think that's the way it was. And so there would be this division. Now the people of Israel, David is fighting against his own people. Now we actually see a type of civil war taking place. And the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. There Israel's troops were routed by David's men. And the casualties that day were great. 20,000 men. Think about that. War was a lot different back then than it is today. Okay. That day, 20,000, and it doesn't say one side or it's probably both sides. The battle spread out over the whole countryside and the forest swallowed up more men that day than the sword, which meaning people were probably falling off ledges. There was just a lot of chaos going on um, that was devastating all the people. Verse 9, now Absalom happened to meet David's men. He was riding his mule. There he was in all his glory. And as the mule went under a thick branches of a large oak, Absalom's hair got caught in the tree. He was left hanging in midair while the mule he was riding kept on going. What a picture. What a picture. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Absalom was there to put himself out in front, to be looked at as a person of prestige. He was a handsome man. His hair was definitely one of his, you know, things that he gloried in. And now here he is getting caught up in a tree, you know, with his hair. He might have been knocked out. He hit the branch hard. We don't know all the details, but he's left hanging there, stranded just hanging on this oak tree. And so 
as they see that, the mule keeps riding on, and there's Absalom just dangling there. One of the men, verse 10, saw what had happened. He told Joab, I just saw Absalom hanging in an oak tree. Joab said to the man who had told him this, What? You saw him? Why didn't you strike him to the ground right there? Then I would have had given you ten shekels of silver and a warrior's belt. I would have made you rich. But the man replied, Even if a thousand shekels were weighed out into my hands, I would not lay a hand on the king's son. In our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Latai, protect the young man Absalom for my sake. And if I put my, if I had put my life in jeopardy and nothing is hidden from the king, you would have kept your distance from me. In other words, if the king would have found out I killed him, you would have stayed away and I would have been hung out to dry. And so this man is showing respect to David's words. Joab's a different sort. Joab has always been kind of a law to himself. He's a fighter, he's a commander, he's a warrior. Remember, there's times where he actually instigated battles and killed people that David said don't kill, but he's such a good warrior and commander, David has kept them there. Verse 14, Joab said, I'm not going to wait like this for you. So he took three javelins in his hand and plunged them into Absalom's heart while Absalom was still alive in the oak tree. And ten of Joab's armor bearers surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab sounded the trumpet and the troops stopped pursuing Israel for Joab halted them. They took Absalom, threw him into a big pit in the forest, and piled up a large heap of rocks over him. Meanwhile, all the Israelites fled to their homes. During his lifetime, Absalom had taken a pillar and erected it in the king's valley as a monument to himself, for he thought, I have no son to carry on the memory of my name. He named the pillar after himself, and it is called Absalom's Monument to this day. What a tragic end. I mean, there is just something awful about war in general and about killing. But when it's civil war, it becomes even more horrific when you have people who are of similar families fighting now against each other. And to have this volume of bloodshed take place all because one person wanted power and the person who wanted power to have their life end in this way. It's just so tragic. And then this little epitaph, Absalom set up this monument to himself. It just tells you a lot about him. Now, we know that in chapter 14, it is mentioned that he had three sons, but they probably died before he did, and we, we don't have any account of how they died or what happened. But we do see just kind of the attitude of Absalom through this whole narrative, that he was a person who was very full of himself, very much wanted to establish himself. He, he was a vengeful person as he killed his stepbrother because of what happened to his sister, and, and it's just a horrific and dysfunctional family that results in some awful, awful things. And so now, verse 19. Now Ahimaaz, son of Zadok, said, Let me run 
and take the news to the king that the Lord has vindicated him by delivering him from the hand of his enemies. Now, remember, it just gave us a little information about Ahimaaz, and he is related. I forget in what way to David. It's like a second cousin, nephew, or something like that. He, he's down the line. He, he's, he's a part of this family, though. And he says, hey, let me run and tell him, hey, the battle is yours. You are not the one to take the news today, Joab told him. You may take the news another time, but you must not do so today because this king's son is dead. In other words, I don't want him hearing from a family member that his son is dead. Now, why do you think he said that? How did David react when other people told him that people close to him were dead? Yeah, I remember that one person thought that they would get a reward. And David, could you kill Saul so easily, the king's, the Lord's anointed, without even thinking about it and boasting about it? And so he ended up killing him. So Joab might have known, it's not good to go take this information to the king, especially about his son. Plus, maybe this shouldn't come from someone so close to him. Verse 21, then Joab said to the Cushite, Go tell the king what you have seen. The Cushite bowed down before Joab and ran off. Ahimaaz, son of Zadok, again said to Joab, Come what may, please let me run behind the Cushite. But Joab replied, My son, what do you, why do you want to go? You don't have any news that will bring you a reward. He said, Come what may, I want to run. So Joab said, Run. Then Ahimaaz ran by the way of the plain. And outran the Cushite. So Ahimez was fast. We know that much. While David was sitting between the inner and outer gates, the watchman went up to the roof of the gateway up by the wall. As he looked out, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out to the king and reported it. The king says, if he is alone, he must have good news. In other words, if he was with someone, maybe he'd be being accompanied by the captors. If he's by himself, maybe he's letting us know about the victory. That's kind of what's going on in his mind. If he's a runner, it must be good news. And the runner came closer and closer. Verse 26, then the watchman saw another runner and he called down to the gatekeeper. Look, another man running alone. The king said, he must be bringing good news too. So he had a positive attitude anyway. The watchman said, it seems to me that the first one runs like a Himez, son of Zadok. So everyone knew this guy was fast. He had a good stride and he was booking. Hey, that must be a Himes. Look at, yeah, he's fast. He's a good man, the king said. He comes with good news. Now, why do you think he keeps saying he comes with good news? Well, and he, he wants to hear good news. He's desperate. Yeah, I, I'm thinking it's good news. I'm thinking it's good news. Then Ahimaaz called out to the king, All is well! He bowed down before the king with his face to the ground and said, Praise be to the Lord your God. He has delivered up those who lifted their hand against my lord the king. The king asked, Is the young man Absalom safe? Ahimaaz answered, "Um, I saw great confusion just as Job was about to send the king's servant and me, your servant, but I don't know what it was. The king said, stand aside and wait here. So he stepped aside and stood there. Then the Cushite arrived and said, my Lord, the king, hear the good news. The Lord has vindicated you today by delivering you from the hand of all those who rose up against you. 
the king asked the Cushite, Is the young man Absalom safe? The Cushite replied, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up to harm you be like that young man. The king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and wept. As he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And so the news ends not good. And David cries out, If only I had died instead of you, my rebellious son. What David could not do, God did do with his son Jesus. David could not die for his son or in his son Absalom's stead, but David's son Jesus, the lineage, was able to die for those who were rebellious for us. And so this cry of David, we actually hear the cry of God for his lost children everywhere and his desire to restore, his desire to forgive. You know, there is something haunting about a parent who loses their child. It is the most intense anguish a person can go through. And it cuts deeper than anything else. I'll never forget when my mom and I went and told my grandfather that his son, my uncle, had died. And my grandfather was sitting there reading the newspaper at the kitchen table like he did. And I had gotten a phone call early in the morning that my uncle had had a heart attack, heart attack and had passed away. And I remember I dealt with my own mourning in the morning there in the shower. And I just, I, I cried because my uncle was dear to me. He was the closest thing that I had to a father. And as he had passed and left just that hurt, we went in to tell my grandfather that his son was dead. And my mom came in and said, you know, Dad, uh, Frankie had a heart attack. And I remember my grandfather, the look on his face and as he stood up and then she said, and he didn't make it. He went home to be with the Lord. And my grandfather just repeated, no, 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 and just started slamming the table. No, no, no. And I just hear that voice when I read this, my son Absalom, my son Absalom. Oh, Absalom, if it were me instead of you. Just the anguish is just so, so deep. Another friend of mine, son, committed suicide a few months ago, and he's been writing a blog, and it's just brutal. The depth of pain that he talks about, and he's eloquent in his writing. And as he talks about these things, my heart is just torn. And he's still a, a man of faith. They are a family of faith, and they are living through this and growing through this. And, you know, one of the things that has been 
difficult for him is the well-meaning people who want to tell him things like, God works out everything, you know, it's in God's plan. You know, God is always at working, but when you tell a father that just lost his son, that God has a plan, the question immediately jumps up. So it was God's plan for my son to kill himself? Is that part of the plan of God? If that's the part of the plan of God, then I don't want a part of God's plan. Because my heart has just been taken out. And even though Absalom was rebellious, and even though Absalom is in this position, there is mourning. Because someone who is more important than himself has been just taken away. In fact, in one of my friend's blogs, he said that the problem is, you know, you as a parent, when your, your child is born, you live for them. Your life is changed because of them. Your direction and your dreams and everything become connected to them because what you want to see now is them make it and them do these things and everything else becomes subject to them. And so when you lose them, you don't just lose them, you lose all the dreams that you had for them that were also your dreams. And it's just a depth of sorrow and hurt that is difficult to understand. And so I've been contemplating writing to him, and i am been fearful because he, he tells about all the well-meaning Christians who say these things that to him just leave him cold and hurt. And I don't want to be one of those. I, I don't want to say, you know, God has a plan, and hey, he's in a better place. And, and those things can sound very trite and distant when you're in the middle of that expression. And so I was putting some things together for him, and I said, you know, I want to write some things to you, but I don't want them to be trite, cliche, or most of all, insensitive. That's not my intention. But I did have some thoughts that I wanted to share with you that have been born through the things that I've experienced and even the things I've read that you've written. And my hope is that this will resonate with you in some good way. If they come across in any way as making less of your pain or the loss of your son, please forgive me. That would be the opposite of my intentions. So I wrote him, I was thinking about Jesus' words on the Sermon of the Mount, the Beatitudes, especially, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And I'll skip some of the things that I wrote, but why would mourning be a blessing? Is it just because someday, somewhere down the line, we will find comfort? Or is there something more? There is no mourning without the loss of something we love. Love is at the root of all mourning. And the greater the love, the greater the sorrow. My point isn't that it is better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all, though that may have some truth. My point is that with real love, there will always be real pain, and that there is a measure of love that is only seen, felt, and known in the shadowed corner of mourning. If God is love, and I believe he is, then perhaps a glimpse of him can be seen and known only in this space, and maybe the comfort 
that is connected to this blessing isn't just that one day in the by and by we will have this brokenness restored. Maybe it is that in this dark, broken corner, we will actually find the heart of God sitting, weeping, and holding us. Maybe there is comfort in knowing that there is no pit so deep that he is not deeper still. And when we read things like this, where David's son is dead, and if we are able to embrace the emotion that is taking place in this man who has just lost his son in this tragic way, and try and recognize that this is something that happens in life in a regular or a common thing that happens throughout the lives of people. It's an experience that many go through. And if we are going to bring any kind of comfort, whether it be comfort that is brought to David or comfort that is brought to my grandfather or my friend, if we are going to have any comfort, the comfort has to be real. I don't want to just know that maybe one day if I, you know, when I get to heaven, everything's going to be good. God has to be real now. God has to show up in the midst of the problem. The blessing isn't for someday. The blessing is that I'm going to receive comfort now. How do I receive that comfort now? And I believe the comfort is received when we know that God is not far that he is near and in the midst of it. You see, it brings me tremendous comfort when I read the words that Jesus wept because I know that he cares like we care, that I know that God cares like I care, that the heart of God is reaching out like that of a father to his children. That brings me incredible comfort that God is not distant, that God is not detached, that God is not too busy or care too much about his own ways and his own things not to hurt for the things that cause hurt. And so Jesus, looking out over Jerusalem, wept and said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I have longed to gather you like a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. And to know that God is brokenhearted about that, that God desires that. And it's the same thing that David is saying here, oh, Absalom, I wish it was me instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And so what we see here in David is something we see in the heart of God. It's something that we see in life in the heart of every parent towards their child. And it's deep and it's profound and it's difficult. But God does love and God does care. And it's important that we see that and understand the heart of God through all of this. Are there any thoughts or questions here in this closing chapter? Could be. Could be. David definitely was detached as a father. He definitely catered to his kids and neglected responsibility of a, you know, disciplinarian or, you know, dealing with those things. He kind of brushed them off. You know, there's probably a lot of things that played into Absalom being like he was. Um, and so, you know, there's 
There's responsibility that falls on David. There's responsibility that falls on Absalom. You know, but at one point, Karina and I were talking about this today. I forget exactly the point, but we were we were talking about how, you know, we are still responsible for the decisions that come before us. You know, when we see someone who's doing something that's wrong and you see them and you think, oh, no, I need to I need to intervene and I need to stop them from doing this thing. It's my responsibility to stop them. Well, at some point, it's their responsibility. You know, if you see a person who is, you know, intoxicated and they shouldn't get in the car to drive. Well, yeah, you should stop them if you see them. But if you're not able to stop them and they get in the car, then they should have had the responsibility for themselves. And so responsibility covers so many things. But we like to put the responsibility on God. We we like to blame God for these things. Well, God, if, you know, you would have done something different, Absalom wouldn't have done this. Instead of putting the responsibility maybe on David and then also on Absalom. You know, if a common question is if there's such evil in the world, how can God exist when there's such evil? I think we touched on it a little bit last week. Okay, say there is no God. Now, do you have no more evil? No, you still have evil. Now, where does it come from? Well, it usually comes from people. And maybe that's where the responsibility really lies, on the choices of people that God has given us the freedom to make. God's not detached. He's not an uninvolved. He's still there, and he, he cries and weeps with the broken. But we have to own the responsibility of our choices. And I think that's something that we are hesitant to do, especially Christians. That's my opinion. <laughs> Any thoughts <laughs> on that bombshell? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And again, you know what? I think we blame Satan a lot for things that probably aren't his fault. And might, I mean, I'm not saying there isn't a devil and there aren't evil spirits that are trying to manipulate the situation, but I think so many times more it's actually people. You know, it's the person who says, hey, come on, let's go rob the store, you know, or whatever. It's the person who who puts that whisper, just like it was Hushai. A lot of times it's a person who actually gives that word, or it's our own desire that wants to do that. Well, I, I think there's a brokenness that's in us that is part of what happens when you, you turn away from good, you turn away from some you turn to something. And so if you turn away from God who is love and who is good, you're turning towards something. And so now you start entertaining different thoughts. Um, that, you know, the devil or Satan wasn't created as Satan. He was created as Lucifer, which means light bearer. And he had a freedom to choose and he rebelled against God. And so when he rebelled against God, he turned away from what was love and what was good, and it developed something else. 
And I think that happens to all of us. When we turn away from what is good, we entertain something else, which is maybe hate or greed or selfishness. And then, you know, why would you kill just to get a pair of shoes? You know, well, because I really want the shoes. And so it's not, what you're doing is your selfishness is creating that space for you to do something. I want this, and now what I want is more important than your life or the pair of shoes that I get from it. So it's, you're kind of creating that space when you turn away from what is good, what is loving, what is selfless, and you become selfish, then the selfish develops your vision and your direction. Yeah, no, I think he's the father of lies. I think he's the first domino that fell, but all the other dominoes that are falling have created more room for those things to happen. You know, so it's not like it's all under his influence. I think that what's happened is created this uh, just possibility of a lot of evil things to happen that we now live in. You know, because I don't think Satan is making every person commit murder. Oh, yeah, he's the father of lies, and he's the, the where the originating of all this evil came from was from his rebellion, but then each other person who's rebelled has joined that rebellion. And, and so he's not the puppet master working everybody. Everyone is just kind of living in this new domain of selfishness, really. That sounds... Right, but it's a little too simplistic because I know most people who have a sinful nature don't murder. And I know a lot of people who have a sinful nature don't commit adultery or don't do these things. I think the sinful nature is dealing with something that is a little bit more subtle that shows up in other ways. It has to do uh, with that relationship with God. But I know people who have called themselves Christians who have committed adultery or murder. Okay, and so we can't blame it just on that nature. I think it's a lot more um, complicated than that. The sinful nature, this, this separation that has taken place between all humanity and God, that we are born with an Adamic nature from Adam. Born with this Adamic nature, there is something that is detached from God that needs to be reattached where we need to be connected back to life. We need to be born again, Jesus talked about. There needs to be a regeneration of who we are. We need to become a different essence than what we are, which is the work of the Spirit. And so that is the problem with the fallen mankind, with the nature, and everyone is in need to be reconciled with God. That shows up in a lot of different ways. And so it doesn't always show up in the blatant sins, I think it shows up in the selfishness. I think that is probably, pride is probably the most common evidence of a person who is separated from God, you know, which is part of that fallen nature. But we need to be careful we don't make it too simplistic because then I would say, well, okay, I know this person who's a follower of Christ, he must still have a sinful and broken nature and must still be in sin because look what he did. And I believe you can be connected to God and still do stupid things, still do sinful things, and not lose your salvation. In other words, you don't become a different essence. You just made a bad choice. i got two hands here. Okay. No, I've encountered some.
and I don't want to encounter him again. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, no, I, I do believe that they're there. I believe that there is demonic forces, and, and they're prevalent. Um, but where the demonic forces take over and where a person's individual and will, will takes over, I think those lines can be blurred. Sometimes I think our choices open us up to opportunities. I know people who, when they're very intoxicated or on drugs, open themselves and all of a sudden are very influenced by demonic forces where they're not otherwise, you know, and so that becomes an, a gateway, if you will, for the spirit to move in that person's life. Well, again, we got to be careful. I mean, originally the word pharmakia is the word sorcery, you know, but it doesn't mean that all drugs are evil. You know, I thank God for Advil, you know, and I, I think there are a lot of medications that can be used in a, a good way, but I think there are also drugs that can be used in a way that's detrimental, like anything. People do evil things, and when you give in to, to the evil, it can just snowball. You know, and I think the same thing can happen where you can open yourself up to be very influenced by evil spirits and forces. And so I don't know all that led up to those things. Some people are just, you know, angry and want to do damage. And yeah, you could say that it has a spiritual root to it. But again, that spiritual root is the same thing that can cause all of us to do those things. And they made choices towards that. And so the devil didn't make them do it. They gave in, they gave in, they gave in, and they gave in. And pretty soon they became, you know, and the same thing is true with us. If we give in, we give in, we give in, we give in, we're going to become something. And the same thing's true if I give in to God and I give in to God and I give in to God, then I can become something more and better. And so it really matters what you surrender yourself to. Paul talks about don't lend your members to instruments of unrighteousness, but instead to instruments of righteousness. You know, and so that's what we want to do is yield ourselves to the things that are good and not to the things that are evil. Because we make that choice. The evil is there, and, and good or bad will take you. Who do you want to go to? You know, the good or bad, it's your choice. And whoever you surrender yourself to will end up becoming your master. Whether it's the darkness or whether it's the light. Lola? I think our thoughts are our thoughts. I think there are a lot of things speaking into our thoughts. And I, I think it can also be people. I, I mean, I think there's a lot of things that speak into our thoughts. And you can try and make it just, you know, bad things, good things, you know, the devil and God, and then ourselves choosing those things. I, I You know, I, I just tend to stay away from simplistic because I don't know the spiritual world that well. I'm not sure... I think us has a choice to listen to who we want to or let who speaks to us influence how we want to. I think God has given each of us the ability to make the choices. Now, sometimes those choices are worn down by chemical imbalance. Sometimes those choices are worn down by the use of alcohol. Sometimes those choices are worn down by the environment we've been brought up in. In other words, a child who's been abused and uh, subjected to just all kinds of perversion, you know, that has influenced the choices they make. And so 
God doesn't judge that child who's been, you know, molested and brought up in a perverted home without taking that into mind. And so the decisions and the voices that they're hearing, some of those are, are put there because of a lot of what's happened to them. Well, I think given to ourselves, you know, without the rescue of God, then the soil is going to be bad because it already is lost. It's already broken. It's already fragmented. Even in babies. Even in babies. Babies still. Yeah, I mean, but a baby, you know, it's not like, oh, that baby's just a sinner, you know, um, because there is this you know, interaction with Jesus and the children. You need to be like the children if you want to get to the kingdom of God. And so something in him is good that he saw, but they're still in need of God, you know. And so um, I, I think Jesus sees people as lost. I think we should see ourselves as in need of help. I think that's accurate. I think even children do see themselves in that way. They're they're willing to ask for help. They're willing to be dependent on their parents. And I think that's one of the things that's good about children is they're willing to receive help and be so open to that kind of thing that as we get older, we're less likely to do that. Um, so, I mean, children, they still need a savior, but they're closer to the savior than most adults, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think what we yield ourselves to will determine what we'll become, you know, and that's why Jesus came so that he can help us get to what is good and what we needed and to deal with what we've done. You know, there has to be, you know, sin isn't forgiven by just saying I'm sorry. Sin is forgiven by Jesus paying the penalty. In other words, I'm sorry takes us to the place where we can say, I accept what you've done for me, you know, and that's the sacrifice. There's no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. And so sin means a lot more than just, I'm sorry, I did something wrong. It's a lot deeper. I I think what we've been reading are the results of sin. You know, it's the death, it's the destruction 20,000 people it's the stabbing three times with the spear in the heart and then beating him to death and this is David's son I think all these things are the results of sin and and the way this is dealt with is by God paying a penalty that is strong enough to cover all the bad and all the evil and all the things that we as humans can do and that's why he had to die it wasn't just enough say don't do that there had to be a sacrifice to deal with the penalty of all that we do. It is. I believe you, and I've been there too. I've heard those voices, like I said, never want to hear them again. (laughs) I mean, again, I think there are spiritual, there's demonic influence in the spiritual realm that is evil. And I think when a person opens themselves to those things, it allows those influences to take control of that person's life. Um, some people more than others, I don't know why. And some people yield to that uh, more than others. And so I, I think there's definitely a, a spiritual realm around us, you know, that how we yield ourselves to will determine what happens. And so I do know a lot of times alcohol 
or drug use has been involved, at least in my experiences, where a person who's very influenced by drugs and then all of a sudden they're very influenced by demonic forces. And I've had people speak to me and it's like, where did that come from? That voice is very weird. You know, that didn't sound like a human voice, you know, coming out of that person. And it's, yeah, it's unsettling. It's like, what's going on? And most of the time the people are intoxicated, at least in my experiences. They've been that way. And so it's been... Yeah, it is. You know, and then, yeah, you have the movies that kind of make us a little numb to those things or frightened just by them and then sensationalize them too. But, um, you know, there's real things that happen. But, you know, those things that happen, the spiritual influence, there is another spiritual influence. And, you know, Jesus has given us hope. And we are told that greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. And so if we believe that now we have the life of God in us, then that life of God gives us the ability to speak into the evil that is around us and to try and and turn it. But they're still susceptible. You know, you can't just rebuke someone in the name of Jesus and the spirit leaves and everything's good. That person still has to choose. In fact, Jesus tells a parable, that person who's delivered from the demonic influences, the house is swept clean and then seven more demons come in that are worse than itself. And if a person knows all the right things but doesn't fill their life with the right things, then they're more susceptible to just more evil things. Um, It's just... uh, still have to get that house occupied by something good. Otherwise, it's open to something. Yes, clean. You know, and there's so many things that if you've grown up in in a place filled with drugs or brokenness or abuse and you come to faith, it does sometimes take time for those things and the effects of those things to get get past them. You know, because they've left a mark on, on who you are and you have to kind of develop things past that. And then you've got a person who's not a person of faith in Christ, but they've lived in a good home, they haven't been involved with drugs, and then they come to faith, and it seems like they're ahead of you. You know, you're not dealing with all the stuff that I'm dealing with, and I've been a follower of Christ for years. How's that? Well, just because those things are good. You know, you live in a wholesome life, and it has good consequences. You live in a broken life, and it has consequences. And it's just part of the reaping and sowing that takes place with life. Um, and there's, you know, some people are able to get out of those things quicker. Some people have harder times. I, you know, can't answer all the reasons why, but just kind of see these things as they happen. Okay, we're going to pray because it's late. <laughs> we should have just started the questions an hour ago. <laughs> Father, thank you for the conversation. Thank you for, Lord, the ability to uh, converse about important things, Lord. And, Lord, I don't have all the answers. And my years of experience are so just minimal. Lord, there's so so much more that is beyond my knowledge. And, Lord, I pray that as we are just discussing these things that you will help us to bring clarity into what is important. And, Father, as we read these difficult things of Scripture, Lord, that you have placed them there, Lord, and they all point to you, Jesus, that they are all revealing something about you. And so I pray that we would be able to see 
you and the things that we read and the things that we experience and that our lives can be interpreted through you and you will give us clarity. And I thank you again for this time. Bless everyone here, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.